0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Cara Alloway, author of Most Hated. What happens when six women join the cast of a reality TV show to try to change their lives? For those behind and in front of the cameras, makeups, breakups, and manipulation are all in the name of great entertainment. Real Housewife of Toronto, former Allure magazine editor and reality TV show producer, Cara Alloway, is the go-to expert on reality TV, giving viewers an inside look on all things Real Housewives all around the world as she brings readers the inside perspective of someone who has been the reality TV villain and survived. She's hosted a variety of daily fashion and beauty radio shows with industry icons such as Stella McCarthy, Laura Mercier, Zach Posen, Diane von Furstenberg, Bob Mackie, and and many others. And she currently has three reality shows in development as an executive producer. Welcome to the show, Kara. Nice to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. So why do you think people are so interested in reality TV shows? Uh I think the Ooh. first one yeah the first one was in the 70s I can't remember the name of it but uh that was the beginning and it's taken off ever since right like
1: yeah well, I would I
0: would say don't you think
1: Candid Camera was one of the first reality shows I mean I remember my son had to do a paper and he was saying but I don't watch reality television and I said do you watch a game show because technically that's a reality show Yeah
0: that's true it is uh, yeah I never thought of game shows actually as reality TV shows. You're right. Candid camera. Absolutely. Uh, But then things have changed and even the, the, there are different kinds of reality TV shows today. I'm really hooked on them. So, yeah. Uh, So, you know,
1: there are, there's the docu soap, which in my opinion has replaced the, the soap opera of old and the people feel every bit as passionately about the characters as they did, you know, when in the olden days, when I remember reading that people would write to Susan Lucci and say, Erica Kane, you're a terrible person, and Susan Lucci would go, but wait, I'm not (laughs) Erica Kane. But again, that docu-soap, it scratches the itch to peer in a little bit of voyeurism at someone else's life and to judge. And I heard a quote recently that said, a judgment is a confession. And it really resonated with me because I thought, isn't that so true? When you see something And it doesn't sit right for you if you really examine why is that not sitting right maybe because you wanted to go there so case in point something like you watch one of these housewife shows and you see someone throw a drink and you say that's ridiculous that behavior is not acceptable is that maybe because there's someone in your life you would like to throw a drink at but because of our constraints we don't do that maybe so.
0: Yeah. So we, I, we can identify with all the, with char- different characters, depending on who you are, but there is that kind of identification. Yeah. They did it or, or, you know, validation of your own behavior. Maybe I'm not so Absolutely. crazy. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, they're doing it. So do I. Uh, okay. But for you, let's specifically, let's talk about you and how did you get involved? What, you know, what in, in, in reality TV? My
1: entry into reality TV as a participant was such a roundabout way. I had an idea. I had been a stay-at-home mom, and I had kept up on my writing career, but I thought I was ready to get into producing, and I really didn't know how. I went to my husband. I said, I have a great idea for a reality show. I had been involved in a lot of charity work, and I said, you know, I think if I did this show, like Million Dollar Listing meets My Sweet 16, and I call it Sweet Charity, and it's like a behind-the-scenes look at these big ticket charity events and the planners and everything that goes into them, I think there would be a lot of organic conflict. And he said, that's great. Good luck, honey. I have no idea. He's a lawyer and he had (laughs) no idea you know, how to produce anything. So I did a lot of research and I found a production company that was producing some reality content close by. And I pitched it to them and they said, well, you know what? We'll purchase the option for this show to work with you. And uh, in the meantime... We're considering doing a show in your area, actually. And I said, okay, you want me to help produce this? You want me to help cast? And they said, well, maybe you could help us with the cast. So they said, you know, it's going to be a show. They never say it's housewives, by the way, when it's housewives. They always say it's a show about women living their best lives here or something like that. They never, because I guess that housewives term has a lot of connotations it brings with it. So I recognized immediately that it was a housewife show. And I, I gave them some names of acquaintances I had. Uh, none of which were cast because either the participant agreement was too ridiculous for anybody to agree to, or they just didn't have TVQ. So the production company came back to me and said, look, we'd like you to consider being a participant. And I said, why? Like I, I want to produce, I don't want to do this. And they said, well, it's like a side door entrance in to producing and you can be the one that's doing all of the charity events. And you know, then your show can be a spinoff. And I was thinking, I really don't want to be on a show. But at the same time, I knew participants from the Beverly Hills franchise and the New York franchise and the Dallas franchise. And I thought, you know what? OK, I can do this. Pride comes before a very big fall, doesn't it? Yes, so it I thought, does. you know, I'll be very careful with what I say. I'll be very careful. You know, my family is fun. I have three young boys. My husband's a lawyer, but he's dynamic. You know, we have a lot of fun. I think we have, you know, interesting. This is great. I can do this. Well, what I had never considered was the edit. And, oh, the power of that edit is just very big.
0: Talk to us about the edit, because it's all in the editing, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) that's... This is what I don't think the viewers understand.
1: You're filming, say, seven to eight hours of content a week. Yeah. But these shows employ writers, they employ talent producers, and they employ story editors. So you have no idea how what you are filming is being stitched together. So you can have a clue, you know, maybe you do a group event and and you have a run-in with someone and you think, okay, well, this is probably going to be a plot line because the very next scene they're having me do is a one-on-one with another third party talking about that run-in. But really and truly, you really don't know until the show airs how it will be stitched together and what the narrative will be. And I think that's what the viewer really doesn't understand is, you know, they they might say like, why would you possibly go back and do this? Or why would you do this or say this to this third party? You have no idea what the story editor is stitching together. And the story editor really is like this Wizard of Oz individual <laughs> yeah. that you never meet that gets this, you know, weekly content delivered and has to weave it together in some sort of story in eight to 16 episodes to tell a tale within that season.
0: So talk to us about your experience, give us think, your experience, your first experience, uh, you, you know, go, doing a show, seeing the edit, and then what, what was, you know, and the surprise or whatever it was, or your reaction to that. So it's,
1: it's really interesting because people say to me, did you know you were going to be the villain? And I will continually say, no, I had no clue I was going to be the villain. But before you start filming, you do a psycho- psychological analysis, a profile. It's a very in-depth one. It takes three hours. It's by a company that does them for corporations, for human resources, to figure out you know, where your best fit is, your strengths, your weaknesses. The production company uses this for that very reason, to find out like, what are your hot buttons, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses. And when we had wrapped filming, I reached out to the company that had performed this, and I said, I'd like to see a copy of mine. And they said, sure, no problem. You know, I was the candidate, of course. So they sent it to me, and the very first line said, Kara Alloway has a very high emotional intelligence. So I read that. I didn't really understand how that would resonate, but I put it in my pocket. Fast forward a couple years later, I am in a how-to-cast-reality-television session with Jonathan Murray, who really is the godfather of reality television. He did the real world. He did the simple life. He is, you know, the godfather. And he says in this session, as you know, we're all taking notes, Your villain should have a dynamic personality, a distinct point of view, and a very high emotional intelligence. I literally stopped what I was doing and went, oh my goodness. So I was the villain from before we even started filming because I ticked all the boxes for that. So no matter what I did, I was going to come out with that sort of edit. And there was a lot of You know, there was a lot of instances, they call them gotcha moments when you're, as a participant, watching it back. For case in point, I hosted a trunk show for dresses at my home, and one of the cast members was a plus-size individual, so of course I made sure that there were dresses to represent inclusivity for every size at my home. The producers edited the trunk show, working with the plus-size individual, so that it appeared I was this horrible mean girl who had a dress show at my home, no dress for the girl to try on, and then they filmed her and her confession later crying and saying, oh, it was so horrible and it was the worst feeling and I never want anyone else to feel this way, which I can completely understand because anyone that knows me knows I would never do that. But what happened is this individual then launched a platform being a spokesperson for plus size in the fashion industry. And it became very lucrative for her. And she was able to do, you know, very lucrative um, deals with manufacturers. She did speaking circuits. Uh, she was very good at it, more power to her. But the problem I had was how she accessed that. Because while her product and her brand was being elevated, my brand was completely denigrated. So much so that, I mean, I, nobody was calling me for sponsorships. And I think this is what Bethany Frank was getting at. When she talks about reality reckoning and producers picking a villain, okay, I'll be your villain, but I'm going to have to have a little bit more compensation because in being the villain, there will be certain sponsors. There will be certain brand deals that will not be available to me. And I think we've all seen that. I'm, I'm not sure if you watch the, the Vanderpump rules, that's the, that's the one you know, we're all using right now as the poster child example. The, the girl who was the victim is on Dancing with the Stars. She's got all sorts of brand endorsements. And I know people are saying, yeah, but the, the girl who was the villain cheated on her best friend with her boyfriend. Well, as the curtain is peered, peeled back and we hear a little bit more about the story, well, they weren't best friends and there was more to that story. And of course, the girl Raquel made a terrible mistake. But it's just so fascinating the way the villains in these docu soaps are punished not just socially on you know the social the social media but also financially.
0: So do you have after your experience or after your first experience, do you have any say now in the editing at all? I mean, can you I would assume that you do so no it,
1: this is and this is the this is the other part of what Bethany Frank was getting at saying in what other industry would a participant agreement like this be acceptable? You have an NDA clause where no matter what the edit is, you are forbade to speak about it publicly in any media. So I was not able to say, oh, actually, she did try on a dress. Oh, actually, she didn't do that. So your silence is assumed by the public as guilt, obviously. Um, and then there's other components, too. You have no power over the edit. And that's what you sign up for. Now, interestingly enough, my husband was a lawyer, and he read my contract, and he was able to skew it, which is very, very unusual in these circumstances. Usually they say, this is the contract, everybody signs the same contract, take it or leave it. But he said, the other participants can lie about my wife, but production cannot. And what was interesting is, technically, production did lie about me through the edit. But, again, that was mincing words, and I'm not a litigious person, and I wanted to work in reality television, so, (laughs) you know, there's a lot that... I had to walk away and just say, live and learn.
0: So that uh, they were right, I guess, when they did the psychological assessment of you, your emotional intelligence is very high because you have to really be able to endure all of this stuff. And, and just, uh, which I absolutely. Think be, yeah. And, you
1: know, if, that's another point, too. The, some of these people that are on shows like The Bachelor or, you um, these pump Rules shows, you know, I am a mature woman with three grown children and a very tight support network. I have a husband, I have extended family. So I was okay. And, and when I say I was okay, people say, oh, but come on, social media, you know, they're just trolls. I, the, the emotional distress that you undergo as the villain is like nothing I had ever anticipated before, like nothing I had ever endured. So I think of these young people and I go, the network's need to have something in place to give them some sort of support, to give them some sort of mental health uh, propping up or whatever. I mean, when I was going through all of the hate, I contacted the publicity manager for my network and uh, for my production company, actually, it was. And I said, you know, I-, I need some help here. Like, this is really bad. And they sort of said, well, we can have coffee or something. Like, you know, there was nothing. <laughs> and so, again, this is what Bethany Frankel is talking about when she is saying, This, the villain in all of this is the participant agreement. And in my novel, and my novel is very light. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm getting into the weeds here. My novel is a fun, funny look. Reality television is the backdrop. It's really about female relationships. Um, interestingly enough, the executive producer of my show was a woman, which, which, and a lot of the, the talent producers were women, which made me want to explore women's, um, you know, women's treatment of other women, not just in the context of among participants, but in a, you know, a producer-participant arrangement. So, um, you know, my book is light and fun and funny, but the villain in the book really, I think, is the participant agreement, because it is this big, looming thing that's there that you know stands between yourself and sometimes yourself and sanity sometimes between yourself and a feeling of justice it's uh it's a, it's a big thing
0: in the book you say the book is and without giving away the whole story uh yes. and you say it's kind of light and lively but relationships among women that's one of the key i guess yes. that's one yeah, very okay much so. so yeah
1: i had a lot of trouble when i wrapped the show um coming to terms with how I had been treated by producers and the other participants. And someone put into my hand a book by Dr. Phyllis Chesler called Woman's Inhumanity to Woman. And it was a fascinating book. And it talks about how the relationships and and how women, you know, in friendships and whatnot, it all starts at eight years old in the playground and it's very tribal. And the truth tellers, the independent thinkers are oftentimes ostracized if they don't fall into step with the hierarchy of the tribe. And how are they ostracized? They're shunned, they're slandered, they're gossiped about. And that was very much what I had experienced as a participant in this reality show. And I thought, wow, I'm going to use this research from Dr. Chesler to inform the characterization of these fictional women in my novel who are interacting with each other and interacting with producers within the backdrop of a reality television show. So as I say, it's light, it's fun, it's funny. There's some crazy characters. You know, there's an influencer. There's a former, former teenage pop star. There's a woman who's married to a professional sports star, a former actress. But at the same time, there are layers to the story. And I examine this this idea of what is called internalized female misogyny or misplaced female misogyny, which is when women relate to other women in a very misogynist way.
0: Do you think there's a difference in generations? You're talking about it begins on the playground at eight years old. Do you think that, it, for instance, and I I often ask this question because millennials, Gen Xs, baby boomers, are there any changes, do you think, in, in how women see each other, how they interact with one another, that this misogyny is changing for the better, maybe the Me Too Movement has done and some of that. Actually,
1: or, yeah. No, unfortunately, I don't think. I really don't think it has. And it's interesting because Dr. Chesler is, you know, in her eighties. She's a brilliant psychologist. She's in her eighties. When she wrote the book, she was younger. But not only did she spend seven years researching for this book, or maybe more than seven years, um, but the first several pages of the book are an apology to the sisterhood, and she says, "Look, I'm a second generation feminist. I love women." But we have some inherent problems. So when you say, do I think it's generational, I think it's become more apparent thanks to social media, thanks to the anonymity that we are granted on social media. You can hurl horrible insults at someone and hide behind, you know, a username. Mm -hmm. So I think that has maybe made it a little bit more aggressive. But, you know, her research goes back to, she says, we're as close to the apes as we are to the angels. And her research goes back to how women are very relational, but we have absorbed so much of this misogyny um, from the patriarchy that now we are delivering it to other women. And it's not how we're supposed to relate because, you know, that's not how women were programmed or designed to relate to one another. So we have to we've, we've sort of strayed from the genetic code. and We've got to get back to that a little bit.
0: All right, if we strayed from the genetic code, we have to get back to it. So what do we do? Can you resolve the problem for us? Well, <laughs> I wish
1: I could. I think it starts in the playground. And you know what? It, that's a great question. Thank you for asking me because nobody has asked me that. And I think about it a lot. And my answer to you would be that we have been successful as a society in making a lot of verbiage toxic. There are words we have taught young people. You don't say this. This is not appropriate. We don't use this. And you know, as a mom of you know, kids that have grown up, I have seen it and, and I've seen, you know, their peer. Now, pe- nobody says words that, you know, I would hear as a child myself. And I think, great, good for us. If I could, I think I would deliver that same message to the concept of gossip, which I mean, gossip has been around forever since, you know, their early ages. It, it's a Herculean task. But if we could teach the young children, you know, starting at age eight in the playground, you have a problem with someone, you take it to that person. You don't take it to a third party. You hear someone gossiping, you turn your back and you walk away. Gossip is toxic. And I really genuinely do believe that's where the problem starts to rear its ugly head is in the gossip. And it's interesting because in, within the framework of housewives, there is a trope. That is very interesting in which a producer will come to a participant and say, we need to film a scene where you pull someone aside to have a one-on-one conversation with them. And I would cringe at that. I was asked to do that, and I would cringe. But I do have to say that there is something very valid in that. You have an issue with someone. You pull them aside. Could I have a word with you? And you talk and you deliver to them what your issue is with them. I think we need more of those open channels of one-to-one communication in that way, as opposed to shying away from it and going to a third party and talking about it. And then it becomes ugly. And then there is the shunning and the slandering and the broken telephone aspect to it. And that's when it really becomes problematic.
0: Can we make a comparison between the eight-year-old little boy on the playground and the eight-year-old little girl? Is there a difference?
1: There's a huge difference. Eight-year-old little boys, when they have a problem, they will tussle. They take it out. They're taught to be physical. Little girls are taught you put it in your pocket and you take it home and you deal with it another time. And it's changed a little, but not a lot. And that is a huge problem. And I'm not saying, you know, we should be encouraging little girls to be more physical. But we have to encourage young girls to celebrate differences. That's where it lies. Everybody is not the same celebrate the differences differences are what make our fabric they're what make our network and they're what make the sisterhood strong celebrate those differences we don't have to fall in step with the hierarchy
0: but one of the things i think one of the issues is for little girls is you know we've been taught to if we express our feelings and maybe their negative feelings or they if we don't like somebody or or Anything that we say can be viewed as you're a bad girl, you're you know, aggressive, you should behave. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And Absolutely.
1: That's where it comes. The, that's where comes the, the case of the, the independent thinkers and the truth tellers. If the hierarchy in the player, playground says, you know, this is the game we're playing. These are the rules we're playing. And this is, you know, how, you know, we're playing house. And this is how the mom is going to behave or something. And someone steps up and goes, well, no, I don't think the mom should behave like that. What if she behaves like this? that individual becomes the independent thinker, that independent individual becomes the truth teller, perhaps from something they've been exposed to, their perspective, and that individual more times than not is ostracized. And that's why we have to celebrate the differences. It's fascinating, in Dr. Chessler's book, because she gets in talking about the toxicity of gossip, saying how, you know, in the extreme, in certain countries, gossip leads to honor killings. You know, if the, if the mother-in-law doesn't like the daughter-in-law, she is involved in these honor killings through gossip. Like, it's, it's a very, very toxic beast
0: that has to be addressed. Gossip is toxic. Uh, it really what, is. Yeah, it is. And we, we only have a few minutes left, but as I said in the beginning in the intro, and I just want to ask you about this, uh, you, you currently have three reality shows in development as executive producer. Can you just give us a little heads up on one of the three or all of them? Sure. Of course I can.
1: (laughs) So one of them is um, my show about charities. It's called Dallas Planners Club because Dallas is the mecca for million dollar charity event galas. And I take a look at the behind the scenes at the charity event, what goes into being a planner, what goes into putting on these events and whatnot. Another one is completely different. It's a food centric show. A group of individuals who are extreme foodies who travel all over the world discovering the science and history of the world's favorite foods. So, you know, where the Reuben sandwich comes from, where the chicken wing comes from. And they know all about the science, all about the history, where to find the very best, what to look for in the very best. And it's a great, if you're hungry, it's a good show to watch. <laughs>
0: Terrific. Okay, so give us a website and or websites to go to for more information about the book, Hated, Kara Alloway. That's who I've been talking to today. Uh, so we want to know, uh, obviously, what you're doing, and we can follow you and also buy the book or listen to the book on Audible.
1: Absolutely. My Audible is excellent. The actress who did it is absolutely fantastic. So the book is available um, wherever you buy your books amazon barnes and noble anywhere you buy your books but also my website has links to take you to all of those places and it's kara alloway with a k K k-a-r-a alloway a-l-l-o-w-a-y dot com the book is called most hated again it's a fun and funny romp i'm on instagram at kara alloway if you read my book if you listen to my book if you do buy the epub version Please let me know what you think, what you thought, what you loved and what you hated, because writers really write to evoke. And there's nothing for me as a writer more satisfying than hearing from a reader and saying, I love this. I hated this. I love this. This made me feel funny. This made me feel good.
0: Thank you so much for being on the show. Kara Alloway, most hated. Um, You're not the most hated, but uh, thank (laughs) (laughs) you. Thank you, (laughs) Catherine. Thank you.